0: I don't know if you know this about me, but my favorite subject in the world is Jesus. It's like it's like my favorite subject. He is my favorite thing. I love looking at who he is. I love examining what he's done. I love exploring the depths. Oh. Oh, okay. Kids, kids praise. Right back here. Melissa cannot be without this. So come on, if the kids that, that are supposed to go, uh, Doyle, it's okay, it's okay, buddy. It's all right, he's got his head down. All right, so if there are any kids, y'all go ahead and head on out. And uh, if you haven't signed your kids in, parents, you need to go with them, right? Is there anything else? I would never say this, so. I don't have kids that age, so I don't even know. Dole says, anybody go, whatever age, if you just don't want to hear me preach today, go on to kids praise. Have, have a great time in there. Okay. So where was I? I love Jesus. I love the life he lived. I love the teachings he's taught. I love the mission. I I'm somewhat obsessed with his heart, with his character, with his mission, with his priorities, with his attitude. I want to resemble him as much as I can in this lifetime. And so I know he lived over 2,000 years ago, but I hope you just will understand me when I say I love him. I've grown to love him, to love Jesus. And as a result, and this is important, as a result of getting to know Jesus, as a result of loving him, I love the church. In a time when it's not maybe real hip to say so, okay, because there's so many people that want to uh, separate their love for Jesus from the love for the church. I love Jesus, but, but not the church, I've got issues with the church, but if you love Jesus, if you really are getting to know Jesus, you don't have a choice. Warts and all, you're going to love the church. You can't love Jesus without loving the church. Some people push back on that by saying, Jesus in all the gospels, he only mentioned the church one time. How can something so important to him be mentioned only one time? But that's really at a minimum that's disingenuous, reflection of the Bible and Jesus' story. And at most, at worst, it's a smokescreen to cover up a laziness concerning church. And maybe not a laziness, maybe a little more legit, a woundedness concerning church. That's legit, but we're stuck if we love Jesus. We're stuck with love for the church if we're gonna love Jesus, if we're gonna care about what he cares about. See, since Jesus was the hinge point between, in the in the story of God, in the history of humanity, since he was the hinge point between the law, which is what the Jewish religion was based on, and the gospel, which is what the church's religion would be based on, right? Since he was that hinge point, since he was busy fulfilling what was written in his Bible, we call it the Old Testament. It wasn't old for him, it was just their Bible. And so as he was busy fulfilling that and ushering in the fulfillment of that, So that others could then write about what we would then know of the church. He only in that point of the story in the gospels mentioned it once. But rather than diminishing the importance of church because he only mentioned it once. Maybe we should look at the one time he decided to mention the church. And say what was so important that he found reason to mention it. What was so important. What did he want us to know about this church that was coming, this church that he was birthing, what was the one time he mentioned it, what did he say? And why did the Holy Spirit record it in Scripture for all time? Here's what he said about the church. He said, I will build it, and it is mine. I will build it, and it is mine. It's in Matthew 16, where he's talking to one of his disciples, Peter. His name was Simon before his name was Peter, and this is where that changes. And he asked Simon, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, a bold claim. Not for us now, but for them then. This was some convincing that took place in Peter. This was some boldness for him to declare it. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not even revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you're Peter. And on this rock, I will I will build there it is, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. There's a lot here, but just focus in on what he says about the church. I will build it. it is mine. That's what he said when he mentioned that one time. And since it is his church church, then we want to be what he intends us to be. We want to do what he intends us. To do, And this is where churches often go astray. Good people, good church-going, God-fearing, Bible-believing people, Jesus-loving people are entirely capable of going astray in church, including us, including me, including you. And we would be in good company. We would not be the first ones to do so. Right after in Matthew 16 right after this glorious statement about the church from Jesus and after he affirms Peter here's what happens next Matthew 16 continuing verse 21 from that time on Jesus began to explain to his disciples what he must go to Jerusalem that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed on the third day see these guys have been walking around this maybe 2 two years, two and a quarter years into his three and a half year ministry. And only now, from this time on, after Peter declared who he was, he started unpacking what's coming. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. Okay? So he's letting them know. And here was Peter's response. Peter took him aside and rebuked him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. See, we, should, we need to recognize something here. This whole scene should humble us. Right after Peter makes this bold declaration of truth, is affirmed by Jesus, has his name changed to mark the moment, in his very next breath, he goes astray. He goes astray and rebukes Jesus and gets the biggest rebuke I can find in Scripture. It was for Peter right after he was affirmed by Jesus. This scene should humble us. Peter was as good and committed follower of Jesus at that moment as there ever was. And he did not have the things of God in mind. But the things of men. Peter still didn't have it. At Southwest... Our leadership is humble in this regard. I'm so grateful for that. It's one of the things that drew me here over almost 18 years ago now was this leadership that's so humble that once is so committed to be about the things of God and not the things of men. Our, uh, you've probably heard us talk about if you've been here for any length of time our starting point class that we offer we offer it usually four times a year we may up that to make it more available to, to more people but it's designed to, for our guests people who are looking for a church family and it's where we share this journey this on, and the ongoing journey that we're still on we share that with you and invite you to the life of having the things of God in mind with us to even help us stay on that straight and narrow path. And so starting point is our effort and we offer it on a half day on a Sunday, come before class, then we worship together, have a meal and then spend a few more hours together. And it's our effort at just introducing in a bit more detail who we are. So what we 're going to do for the month of January is I'm converting that class into a series, because this is the time of year, like Dole told you, that we always kind of reconnect to our vision, and simultaneous, I've always invited all of our members who've been here a long time to come and join us for that class setting. And since you won't, I 'm just going to bring it to you because I want you to know how it is as the seasons have changed, how we present ourselves to the world, and if you are our guest then this series is for you in particular, because I'm basing it on the class that is in particular for you. So in that class, I begin by, after I ask how many have a Church of Christ background, and you might be interested to know, it is almost dead on half. When we have new people come into us, it is typically half and half. We have people that do not have Church of Christ background, and people who do. Half half. Occasionally, we have a unique crowd that's a, you know mostly Church of Christ folks, and then we have a unique crowd that's mostly people who are not Church of Christ, but typically, and in average, for sure, it's about half. And so I ask the question, whether it's from your experience with the Church of Christ or your experience with the Church of Christ, how would you know when you're in a Church of Christ? And so we have a conversation. What characteristics do you notice that define the church of Christ as you understand it. And I'm just getting a feel for how everybody's experience has been. And so, invariably, I get a cappella worship. They don't say it that way. They say it, you don't use music in worship. And I always, always faithfully tell them our worship minister would take issue with that and says, yes, we do have music, we just don't use instruments. We do have music. So, a cappella worship, they oftentimes point out baptism is highlighted and it's usually there's a baptistry prominently displayed in our buildings they say things like uh you take the lord's supper weekly they talk about uh ministers are not called ministers, pastors they're called ministers did you i don't know if you've even noticed that but there's a story to that there's a reason for that they think uh, that this comes up less and less, but it still squeaks in there that the Church of Christ, they're the ones that think they're the only ones going to heaven. You know, and that there's, there's kind of a story to that as well. Strong emphasis on scripture. You know, and anyway, I get a bunch of, Conversation out of that. And that's the limitation of doing it here, but I'm trying to reflect to you. But I ask that, and then I pull up my chair, and I say, if we could have Jesus sit right here, and we could as a class just look at him and say, Jesus, how about you? How do you know when you've entered a church of Christ? What, what defining characteristics would you need to notice among a group in order for you to determine that it is a church that is actually of you. And I think he would say a select few things, and one at the top of the list that he would say, I believe he would say, I would look and see if they are making disciples. Are they making disciples? So we start here with our mission. We start with our mission and vision, and here it is. Here's how we state the Southwest Church mission. Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving relationships with God and others. This dictates what we do and why we do it. And then I want to add here, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it today, but our vision and distinguish between these, and you've heard this, the vision is what you hear mostly from up here. Our vision is to love first, become like Jesus, and advance his mission. Okay, so what's the difference between mission and vision? And Andy Stanley is who gave me a memorable way of remembering this. He said, the mission, you marry your mission, you date your vision. Okay, your mission is something that you get from the Bible. You get your mission, a church gets its mission, preferably from Jesus in the Bible. That doesn't change. The wording can change, but it's all going to be something like what you're reading up there for any church church that is getting their mission from Jesus. Your vision you get from your context. You get from the city you're in, the nation you're in, the neighborhood you're in, the the situation you're in, the people who God has sent to you as family, the season of life your church is in. Your vision can change. And you all know this to be true because just a couple of years ago, we sat down as a leadership and started dreaming and praying God. and And God had us change our vision. Our vision was, if I was doing this class just a few years, a couple or three years ago, this would say something different. It would say our vision is to create and sustain an ever-increasing number of small groups that accomplish our mission. That's what it was for over a decade because we were trying desperately because God had called us to to be a a church that is made up of relationships and we needed to put turn up the volume on that. We wanted to be a church of small groups, not a church with a few small groups. But now we feel like that's in our DNA, that's there. We don't need that as our seasonal vision, and so we changed it. Our leadership discerned that now it's time to establish ourselves as a love first church. So we'll be discussing how we operate for the rest of the three weeks, the next three weeks. But today, I just want to anchor you into where we get our mission. And you already know, our mission, this mission statement, it's based on the life and teachings of Jesus. So we get the what, the why, and the how we are to do church from Jesus. And so let me just walk you through that. So the what? The what? I believe the church has got no excuse to be fush, fuzzy on its mission, on the what? I mean, in the narrative of Scripture, the, the Gospels lift this up in a, like a memorable way. All right, so Jesus, remember, he's let them know I'm going to die, and they struggled with that. They couldn't get their minds around it, but it's still going to happen. So for the rest of the ministry, he's unpacking that to them, and towards the end, he says, guys, here's the deal. I am going to die. I know y'all are struggling with that, but it is going to happen. I'm going to come back to life, and then I want to have a meeting right here on this mountain. So he did die. They still didn't quite get it. He came back to life. They still didn't quite get it, and this is that meeting on that mountain, if he never had their attention, and he did, this is the moment where they're signed on and sold out and attentive. You've heard the phrase famous last words. This would be that moment where you're going to remember what he says next. And so here's what he says in Matthew 28. He tells them now that he's conquered death, they might believe this, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I'm with you. I'm with you to the end of the age. This is so important. Our forefathers for centuries of Christianity has so understood this to be like our marching orders. The marching orders for the church that's been given a name. It's called the Great Commission. There's no room for us to be fuzzy on the end. What are we supposed to be doing, Jesus? It's your church. It's his commission. We're supposed to be about making disciples. And that's the command of this commission, is to make disciples. Now, there there are people who want to argue and say, no, there's four commands here. Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach disciples. And teach them to obey. But my English teachers and theology tells us that the command of this commission is to make disciples, and those others are supporters of that, and you know by asking why. Why do we, yeah, we're supposed to go, but why? Why do we go? The answer is to make disciples. Yes, we're supposed to baptize, but why? Why are we supposed to baptize? The answer is to make disciples. Yes, we're supposed to teach to obey, but why are we supposed to teach people to obey everything Jesus commanded? And the answer to that is to make disciples. And so it's pretty important, and we'll spend next week on this in more depth, but it's pretty important for us to know then, if we're supposed to make them, what's a disciple? Right? If that's our marching orders, we better not just pretend like we know and and act like, I got it, and start going. That's how we go astray. We'll end up doing the things of men and calling it the things of God. Right? So what's a disciple? Well, a disciple is a follower or a learner who's devoted to being an imitation of a mentor or a teacher. Okay, now this is important. The rabbi-disciple relationship is different than what we're used to, the teacher-student relationship. Like even in this setting, this is all knowledge-based. You're not you're not having to conform to anything. You're just listening to some stuff. And if I was going to give you a test, I would give you a piece of paper with the stuff on my paper and see if you've got the knowledge. And whether you conform your life to what you're saying on that wouldn't matter at all. You'd still get an A if you got it all right. It's knowledge-based. That's, that's the Western teacher-student relationship. The rabbi-disciple relationship is different. <laughs> If you sign on to a rabbi, you're not just wanting to know what he knows. You want that. You're trying to become like him. This is what the church is. why we're so countercultural. It's because we're about becoming like someone, like Jesus, which ultimately is like God because Hebrew says that he was the fullness of God, Jesus was. So I... Uh, There's so much more to say here, but I'll just put my life verse up here because this changed my life. John said, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must worship at a church that doesn't use instruments. That's how you know. Yep, salvation's on the balance on that. Nope. Nope, that's not what he said. And you won't find anything close to that. Instead, you'll find this all over Scripture. And whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So just bear with me here. I'm going to have you say two words with me. Life change. Ready on three. One, two, three. Life change. That's what we're about. And not just any kind of life change, but change ever increasingly more and more into the image of Jesus. I starting point, I always say, I, I don't know why any of you would place membership here, would want to throw in your towel with us as a family if you didn't want your life to change. If you didn't want, in a penetrating way, to, for the old to die and the new to come to life. I don't know why you would, but if you want it, if you want that, you are in the right place. That's the what. Why? Why do we do that? Why do we make disciples? We find out in Scripture the why matters. It's not just the what. You don't just do it and it doesn't matter how you're doing it or what's going on inside of you when you're doing it. Not in Christianity. Do you have one of those lists? You know, I started mine when I was a kid. I think because I was, well, you know, list. Things to ask God when you get there. You got one of those? You know what? Well, on my list, early on, this one made it. Why mosquitoes? I lived in Houston, all right? It's built on a swamp. So, This was a natural one for Christians in Houston. I mean, why? Isn't there a better way? Isn't there another way you could have fed the spiders and the birds? I mean, the mosquitoes? I mean, disease? and I mean, just why mosquitoes? It's one of my questions for him. Okay, but maybe a heavier, weightier question that I grew up with more in my teenage years. And this is because I grew up in a church that was about knowledge and was about getting it right. You're going to have to get it right to get to heaven. You know, that's kind of, it's in there. So I'm studying scripture with my church looking for all the commands that I need to get right. And so, I mean, there's a lot. Depending on how you read scripture, there's a lot of stuff that I'm getting wrong, that we're getting wrong, that, that, that I don't know if I'm getting right. Okay, and so one of my questions is, God, what What of all the commands, what's the most important of all these rules? I'm gonna get some wrong, but if you want, if you had one at the top that I could really focus on and and really start there and try to get there's one you want me to get right, which command is it? Fortunately, while God was here, someone asked Him. While God was here in Jesus, someone asked Him. It's in Matthew 22. It says, an expert in the law tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? There it is, my question. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It's the first, greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the Bible hangs on those two, it says. All the law, all the prophets. all, And just... Just like the Great Commission in the narrative, this, in our history, got a title. And Jesus even used it. It's called the Greatest Command. We've got the Great Commission, and now the why is the Great Command. Why do we do what we do? Love. It's the most important thing. Is you growing into being a loving person. Loving for God with how much of you? All of you. And then loving others. In the same way. The only motive that gives any worth to any church work, even disciple-making work, is love. Get all of the work exactly right and do it without love and you're doing it wrong. And when you get the work wrong, well, there's a verse for that. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love is most important. It's all over Scripture. 1 Corinthians 13, Peter tells us, what if you do some of the good, great works of Scripture and the Bible and for the church without love? He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I've got the gift of truth-telling, right, prophecy, God's words, and can fathom all, All mysteries, all knowledge, I get 100% on every Bible Bowl test. I get it right every single time. And I have faith to move mountains. Can you imagine having a faith that moves mountains? But I do all that with love. You know what I am? Nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, if I am the social justice warrior of the world giving all that I possess to the poor, and surrender to my body to flames. I allow myself to be killed, killed when I could get out of it, because I wear Jesus' name. But I do those things, and have not love, you know what I gain? Nothing. How important is love? It's the thing. That's what's important. Have you ever seen or experienced Attempts to convert someone to the gospel Which is one of the most loving things you could do in the world But you do it without love have you ever seen attempts to do that been a part of that I have one that haunts me and drives me to this day to not do it like this. I was in high school I was a sophomore. I was in biology class and I sat next to ron puckett ron puckett was a baptist And so he had some things wrong And he thought I did too so every day we'd come in and we would have this debate. And I, sometimes with notes. And we are debating and arguing for each other's souls what you believe about instrumental music and, and what you believe on the Lord's Supper and, and how you practice that. In the name of the church, you know the, the Baptist is not a biblical name. Right? He said, this is John the Baptist. I go, oh, come on, come on. You know, so we have this argument. I mean, just, I'm pretty sure I was right on every argument. But here, here's where I was wrong. Cheryl, who sat right behind us, who doesn't know Christ, she watched this for a year. Angry arguments, bitter, scoffing. That's what Christianity looks like to her. See, she didn't know enough to distinguish between he and I. Love. Love is the most important thing. And keep in mind, this is why Jesus, when he's asked what's the most important command, he had to give two. He couldn't give one. He had to give two. You cannot love God without loving others. You can't do it. 1 John 4 says, we love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot possibly love God Whom he's not seen, no matter what they claim. So he's given us this command whoever loves God must also love his brother. So, church, listen. If you want a place that will love you as the top priority first, there's other things to talk about, but not before we love you and you feel loved. If you want a place, That will love you regardless of your station in life, regardless of your income, regardless of your marital status, regardless of your struggles, past, present, or the ones that will come, regardless of where your kids are, your parents believed, or whatever you've come from. If you want a place that will love you no matter what, then you're in the right place. That's what we're after. We won't do it perfectly, but that's what we're about. And in this season, it's our vision. To learn how to do that first so that's where we're at on the why so the how I won't spend a lot of time on this one but the how, you've got to follow, walk with Jesus and just look at how he made disciples if, if you want to answer the question how should we make disciples and here's kind of where well I'm just using one scripture that's kind of obscure but this is in Mark chapter 3 and in Luke we're told that he prayed all night Before this happened, but Mark's account doesn't have that, but Luke's does. He prayed all night before he did what he's about to do here. Here's what he did it says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12. Okay, so he had a bunch of followers at this point. We're probably a year and a quarter, year and a half into his three and a half year ministry. So he's got a lot of people following him that would say they're disciples. But now he's designating 12, designating them apostles. Apostles means sent ones. So he's, he's got the plan for these 12 to send them out. That they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach. There it is. And to have authority to drive out. Demons. So he called these 12 guys and you go on, he named specific dudes. We say this is the first small group he ever formed, right here. He called these 12 guys for three reasons. One, we know he's, they're sent ones. He's going to send them out to preach. He's equipping them for ministry. He's going to give them some spiritual authority, right? That's going to back them up. But the, those are the second and third things. The first reason, what's the first reason he called them? See it? Just hang with him. Just hang out. Just be with him. Be in relationship with him. He called these guys to be in relationship with him. Why? Because he knew this will be the most impactful thing that they will ever experience is an intimate friendship with me. And I'm going to be calling them to do this with a new generation of disciples. I need to show them how they're going to do it. I'm going to model it for them right here. So Now, this wasn't a generic kind of ministry that's just out on the TV. I don't begrudge TV ministries. Jesus, for sure, Jesus preached to thousands. Then when you're following along, you see he trained 72. He had 72 disciples that were ready to be equipped, and he sent them out two by two. But he really equipped and mentored these 12, right? That's just a different level of intimacy. You could even, when you follow along with Jesus, that he had three Right? Peter, James, and John, in several instances, they go a little bit farther with Jesus. Like on the prayer when he went to pray. They all went out there but then just Peter, James, and John went a little bit farther with him. And you could even say he had one, right? Peter, right? Peter. Unless you're John. John thinks it was him. Because in his gospel, he refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. Right? So they all probably felt like, oh, I'm the one he loves the most. But we see these levels of intimacy that jesus had while he was here on earth when god could have made disciples and initiated this movement that he wanted to go and span the history of humanity for the rest of time and so far so good two thousand years however he did it it's working and when he could have done it any way he wanted he could have done it by just dropping the a book down from heaven he could have dropped leaflets over him. He could have preached it. He could have, got, he could have introduced the microphone and, and just preached it and said, you get it, you get it. When he could have done it however he wanted to initiate his disciple-making movement, which is the mission of the church, he did it by investing in a few. He did it through some personal, intimate relationships. And since he did it that way, we want to do it that way too. Now, it's very important to note something here because it makes it into our mission statement too. Jesus didn't just maintain intimate relationships with these 12 in order to make disciples. He always maintained his relationship with God. This is, this is revealing. This was life-changing for me. Luke, who we're gonna be studying a good portion of the next year, I'm excited about that, but Luke put together, he says it, I put together a orderly accounting of the life of Jesus. All right, Matthew, Mark, and John—I guess they were pretty haphazard—but Luke, he was orderly. He put it together, and he did some interviewing of people. And here's one of the observations he made, and this changed my life. It's in Luke 5:16. It says, "Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed." We should think about that. I mean, he's got three and a half years of ministry—not a lot of time. And and so he's got. But at the peak of his ministry, people are coming to him. They're wanting whatever it is he's selling. They're wanting and they need explanations and understanding and proofs. He does some of that, but he often withdrew from all those crowds to private places to pray. Why? This, uh, this confused me because, I mean, Jesus, in my theology, he's God. He is God. So, I just assumed Jesus and God have this little connection, right? It's just, he's God. He doesn't why, why is he doing that? I had, I had a teacher tell me once that it's, he's wanting to be a good example. And that made some sense. Okay, he's wanting to be a good example until I really thought about it. So so Jesus had a fake prayer life? to, 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 to So that we would have a real one? No, no. What I learned was when God became flesh and dwelt among us. He took on all the limitations of humanity. Hebrews says he can sympathize with our weakness because he he has been faced every temptation just like us. Think about it. He was a human, and so he depends on what we depend on to stay connected to the Father. And prayer. That's why Jesus often withdrew he often withdrew to spend time with his father in prayer because he had to. That was his source of connection. That was his source of sinlessness. That was his source of direction. Why pray all night before he selects the 12 unless he wanted to know from his father who he wanted to discern wisely? You know that verse that says that when Jesus was 12, that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man how does God grow in favor with God how does God grow in wisdom no he was a human being just like us and so he maintained that relationship with God if Jesus Christ needed to maintain his relationship with the father in order to stay on mission how much do you need to Could this be described of you? I'm just throwing this in for free. Free little prayer sermon. Brian often withdraws to solitary places to pray. It needs to be. So, in summary, when you go to Jesus, when you go to Jesus, who's the head of the church, he's building it, it's his. And you ask him the what? and the why and the how of church you get some version of what we've decided is the wording of our vision statement. Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving relationships with God and with others. That's what we're about. You want to be a part of that church? I heard Landon pray this morning how, how much this church means to him. But then did you hear him He thanked God for how much the church means to God. That's why we've got this. It's why we've got forgiveness. It's why we've got his guidance. It's why Jesus came. It's why he's building this. Warts and all, he loves it. He loves you. He loves us. You want to be a part of that. I'm going to ask our elders and our ministers to go ahead and move around. We've got some in the balcony, some here, just in case you have have a question about this church or about the gospel or about Jesus or anything I've said. You can uh, ask these guys. But, you know, the point, I want to just tell you why why this mission? Why this disciple-making, loving, relational mission? What's the point of God? What's his point? What's Jesus' point? Fortunately, he told us that too. It's life. You don't have to go any farther than your own heart to know that you are clamoring for life. Every time you complain about sickness, it's because some life is being stolen from you and you want it back. Even when you sin, you're doing it because you think momentarily, you've been fooled to think, if I just do this, I'll get more life, right? even those who are hopeless, and get to a place where they feel like suicide is the answer, death is the answer, it's because life has become so intolerable that they think death is more life for them than staying alive. Everything inside of you is clamoring for life. And Jesus, he has us on this mission, not only because he wants to give it to the world through us, but because it is the life he wants to give us. Life is the point. Two kinds of life I find in Scripture. Now and eternal. Life now and eternal. This is the point of the church. This is the point of his mission. In John 10.10, 10, he says, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. This is why I'm following him. is because he claims that he has what it is I'm looking for. This is where I start whenever I reach out to anyone who doesn't know Christ. Because he, this is his point. He wants us to have it now. But he also talks about this eternal life, right? And I love Jesus' interpretation of eternal life. You've got a picture of it. It's probably not accurate. If it's not the greatest thing you've ever could possibly imagine times 10, you don't have the right picture of it, okay? Because we can't imagine what it's gonna be like. But I love seeing the scripture writers try to describe it. John, when he has a little curtain opening and he sees it. He, he uses the most valuable earthly things he can think of. There's this crystal sea and this golden golden road. They use gold for pavement and this pearly gate. And I mean, that, that's the best he can do. It's just, it's so valuable. He tries to describe it. I think John gets a little bit more to it when he says the kingdom of heaven is a matter of peace and joy and righteousness, right? Whatever pavement they use that's what I'm looking for right I want peace I want joy and I want rightness rightness between me and God and me and my fellows but here's Jesus's description of heaven here's what he says says now this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ he defines it in terms of a relationship that's what it is And that's why Jesus can say, hey, pray like this. Pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We can start enjoying it now. Now. That's what we're doing together, church family. That's what brings us together. That's what we're after. And it's what we want for the world. Is that. So. If you want to be a part of that church, and I'm asking those of you who've been part for a long time, but maybe have gone astray from this mission. You want that life? Join us, join us. If we can help you in any way, let's stand and let's sing to God, this great God of love.